There's something beautiful about the emotion we call love. I'm on a mission to find out more about how it affects every being. It all starts with perception. What if our perception of the world and its many inhabitants expanded? Every person has a different vantage point. When we truly know a soul, we find knowledge. Asking questions with an open mind is how we learn how to relate to one another. When we identify with someone beyond the surface level, we fear less and love more. We're all teachers. Every person on this planet has something impactful to share. This podcast is about expanding my vision and illuminating the threads that bind us together as a community. Simply put, This podcast is about the lessons in love I learn along the way in my journey of finding my true self. Welcome to Unified Threads. This episode is about learning how to let it flow. And here I am on the other side of the microphone, still practicing that, six months later. (laughs) No matter, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. The resiliency is about being strong, finding your inner strength, and staying grounded in that. No matter what winds come your way, staying rooted in what you know is true, what you know is right. I'm going to be honest. It's December of 2015, and I recorded most of the content for this episode back in August. I'm still going through a lot of the same struggles as I was earlier this year, but I'm more aware of them now, and I'm able to continue day by day to take another step, hopefully in the right direction. So for this episode, we've got a few different people that are highlighted here. In the beginning, I'm sharing some thoughts after meeting with Dr. Renko Pinter, a psychology professor who I met in Cambridge in September, and after meeting him, recorded some of the thoughts that came to my own head. You'll hear some more from Dr. Penter later on in this series. Then there's the incredible Carolyn Wigman. Her and I met while working together on the Long-Term Recovery Committee for Oklahoma County following the May 2013 tornadoes that devastated parts of Moore, Oklahoma. She's been a brilliant role model for me. She responded in the meetings and helped to continue to every single meeting drive more communication, more improvement between agencies being able to work together, and all working towards the end goal, which is let's get these clients back to the new normal. Clients being the victims that were affected by the tornado. Then of course, there's Taki Kavar. Taki and I met in the Diag in front of the University of Michigan when I was doing some acro yoga practice on one of the amazing acro yoga jam nights that a group in Michigan organizes. Taki offered to give me some self-defense classes after hearing my story about how I was going to go travel the world for a year alone. What he did was much more than prepare me in self-defense. He prepared me in being confident and knowing that it's more important to have a response than a reaction. No matter what situation you're in, when you allow yourself to be triggered, you're immediately put into a vulnerable state. When you observe what it is about the situation that's triggering you and respond that's when you can take care of yourself. That's when you can truly protect yourself. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Learning more about resiliency is something that I am constantly working on. So please don't think that I am the pro here. Every single day, I'm working to find my own resiliency, my own strength, and cultivate it. So I'd love to hear any feedback you guys have after the episode. Love and namaste. Resilience, the ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape, elasticity, the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties, toughness. I 
just have too many tabs open on my browser. Too many things going on at any given time. He was telling me that meditation is a fundamental step. We have all the answers already within us. And when it comes to finding our purpose on this planet, he believes the secret is unlocking those answers. With meditation, we can learn how to control the mind. When you truly focus on something, you become invincible. At least, that's what he said that a couple different greats in the United States have said. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Focusing takes practice. This is another reason why studying the Brahma Kumari's philosophy seems key to me. Now, I'm not going to run away and sell my stuff, which <laughs> I don't have that much left, but I do have a little bit. And I do plan to return to society and be a contributing member in a way that helps to transform this planet. What I'd like to have a better understanding of is how does the soul force come into play? And what is the meaning behind soul force? Dr. Pinter said that by age six, our life template is installed. It's sitting in our subconscious, controlling the way we perceive reality. The steps to reprogram this template, in his opinion, are identify the programs for what they are. You can potentially reprogram them through a traumatic event, which is not necessary for all, but is something that can trigger someone to move forward. Some people are not able to let go, and when that happens, they might become suicidal. So tra traumatic events is not always for everyone. Affirmations. I can do this. I am beautiful. I am capable. I am a being of light filled with love. Some of the affirmations that I use daily. And then of course there's energy techniques and hypnosis. Kinesthetic things are also a possibility. This is Carolyn Wigman with the Long-Term Area Recovery Committee for Oklahoma County. We're here at the Serve More Community Renewal Center, correct? Okay. <laughs> so, Carolyn, tell us a little bit about the story of how you landed here in Oklahoma City. Well, actually, Moore is where we're at, and mm -hmm. then also at the Serve More headquarters. Okay. Well, uh, so to start out, um, I've been in Oklahoma for about a decade and a half. Oh, that's a good call. Uh, so, I mean, I'm an Oklahoman. I'm an Okie. Although I learned recently that's a derogatory term to some people. Really? Something about the Dust Bowl and people who left were called Okies. So oh, I've stopped using that as liberally. But I'm an Okie, an Oklahoman, whichever you choose. Um, I originally came to Texas, though. Uh, so I grew up in the Dallas area, kind of Grand Prairie. It's a little suburb there. Uh, and came up here for school. I went to Southern Nazarene University for uh, a couple of years and didn't know what I wanted to do and ended up staying because my friends were here and I liked it and it was easy to live here and Oklahoma is comfortable and there's fantastic people and lots of great stuff going on in Oklahoma City. So I've been here about a decade and a half and uh, I was wrapping up my uh, a grant I had for my master's thesis uh, at University of Central Oklahoma when the semester ended in 2013 uh, in May. And I was looking for a job because my, you know, my research assistantship had ended and had some applications out, had some interviews scheduled. And then we had this kind of series of tornadoes that went through on May 19th and 20th. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a lot going on, so I figured I would go and volunteer. And I couldn't figure out where to volunteer. Uh, and after about a day and a half frustration, kind of, oh, okay, well, I grew up Nazarene. The Nazarene Church has something going on disaster-related, so I found out where they were and kind of showed up uh, around 5, and there were, you know, a bunch of people kind of standing around, not doing a lot, looking very stressed, and, oh, there's nothing really to do right now, while other people are frantically running around doing things. <laughs> so uh, I figured they needed some help, and I kind of dug in and started helping with kind of the organization and the systems uh, that they had in place, and I... Uh, Within about a week, I had a job, and 
then they, uh, like a lot of organizations who do uh, disaster response, uh, they prefer to be involved in the glamorous, the really sexy debris cleanup phase. Um, it's easier to get volunteers out. Uh, it's, you know, it's less complicated as far as having to vet you know, you can, you can tell if someone needs food and water, that, mm-hmm. that, that's the easy part of it. Or right after a tornado, which we deal with in Oklahoma a lot, you know, wherever you throw, however many volunteers, whatever skill levels with whatever equipment, they're going to be useful and helpful and necessary largely. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, a few weeks, a few months out, it's getting more complicated. So, uh, you know, you have to have actual projects lined up and assessed and families vetted and, Equip, certain equipment and certain skill levels for volunteers. So even some of those things that uh, may seem really simple at first become more complicated. And a lot of organizations like to get out of the disaster stuff as you're getting out of that glamorous debris removal kind of response phase. Uh, so the Nazarenes were kind of wrapping up their their stuff moving into December of 13, and I've been involved with uh, LARC, the Long-Term Area Recovery Committee, which is one of five long-term recovery committees that kind of were established uh, to help the agencies and the community kind of coordinate all the efforts in their area to maximize the outcomes for all the families uh, and the entire community as a whole that were impacted. Uh, So I've been involved actually with all five of those, uh, most heavily with LARC as it was in the metro area. Uh, And coming up on January 14, they were kind of getting fiscal agents in place and trying to acquire grants and really needing some assistance uh, with a program coordinator position. So I kind of moved into that. And I actually, January through March, um, we were getting grants and getting fiscal policy and a fiscal agent established and all of that good stuff. Because a lot of times with uh, these long-term recovery committees, you have all these groups of agencies that come together. You don't get a 501c3 necessarily. You'll get someone who's, in a lot of states, uh, United Way will be the fiscal agent for these sorts of groups and kind of manage the money. They've got the 501c3. In Oklahoma, uh, a lot of uh, United Ways don't really do that, uh, but they'll kind of recommend like a part one of their partner agencies. So you, they maintain high fiscal standards and everything, but uh, they maybe have, I'm not sure why that is. So is that to funnel the resources through so if somebody wants to donate directly to the long-term area recovery committee versus going through one of the funding entities like the different faith-based organizations or nonprofits that are involved mm-hmm. okay so the reason we specifically did it was uh particular to getting a program coordinator position established um mm-hmm. because keeping up with as many moving parts as we had at the time uh, was pretty much impossible. So I kind of started doing a lot of that stuff in probably October of 13, like keeping attendance at meetings, uh, making sure our contacts lists were updated. Like some of the really like mind-numbing clerical stuff that is really critical to people actually being able to contact each other. So you're sitting at a meeting and there's 50 or 100 people there. And, oh, this lady across from me, her name was Pam, her organization, she's with some Baptist church and they had this, that, and the other. And now I'm sitting here two days later and I have a family in front of me and they're needing this out or the other. Mm -hmm. And I can't find Pam's number and I can't remember her last name. Well, if somebody at the long-term recovery committee is doing their job, they're getting those contacts lists out and they're making that information accessible and they're kind of creating a clearinghouse uh, through that group. So people can make the connections they need to, to get the help to families that need it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of process started in like October of 13. And then by January, we were looking at, uh, needing to set up to get an organization called World We're New In to come and do an event needs assessment, make sure we had caught everybody, uh, that people weren't falling through the cracks, uh, that, you know, people had heard about the resources that were available and things like that. And there was really, it was really necessary to have at least through that period, somebody to kind of quarterback all of that and, Kind of heard the cats. Heard the cats. Yes. Yeah. Maybe that shouldn't go in the podcast. <laughs> well, we'll have tons of editing time. There you, Don't there worry. You go, there you go. <laughs> um, so we, we actually specifically set up this one. I want to speak from the heart for a second. I thought that this podcast was going to be about me, my journey, and it is. But I don't think it really matters if you know much about my past. There was a time where I thought that maybe that would be important. However... I really don't think that it is. My template is built around my past. That's true. 
And I could give you a brief overview of my past. But at the end of the day, the past is not the present. And being in the present is what I'm trying to do. So I'm going to skip forward and we're going to talk about things that are happening in the present. I think it's about the now. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. This verse was delivered to Taki and I at Riverside Park when we were practicing one day, doing a little bit of combat training together. And then all of a sudden, a guy came up to us who was with my friend Kevin, looked at Taki, said, You have the scent of the Lord, something like that, all over you and said that he needed to read this verse. So, I wanted to read it. That way it can be shared in Taki's episode and perhaps that can be a thread that's woven together later on. chance that I was even there because I hadn't even heard about it a friend of mine had kind of asked me to go last minute I didn't have anything that I was doing so I said sure but uh, when I got there you know, I didn't know anybody if I was trying to meet people and uh, I seen you and you were I think doing downward dog or whatever and you were kind of doing this wheel over and uh, I seen it and I thought it was really interesting because it looked kind of like what I do as far as martial arts in, in the, uh, some of the styles I do I have a lot of uh, fighting on the ground and in positions that were very similar. So I wanted to come over and ask if that's what you were doing or was it just something else? Because I haven't seen that particular uh, transition in yoga before. <laughs> so I was curious and then I just started talking and I don't even know how it kind of synced up. I, mean, I guess it was meant to be. Yeah, I think But yeah, it was just very kind of random. Or, you know, some people might say that, I guess, I should say Providence or something like that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. just right time, right person, I guess. Yeah, because it was so cool that you were able to help me over the last four months feel more empowered to have a response instead of a reaction, as we've talked about. Yes. You travel and you'll be in all different situations, not necessarily thinking that it's going to be dangerous everywhere I go, there may be some places where I need to be walking more confidently. I think the things that you've taught me will help me to feel like if there was something where I'm feeling threatened, I could at least defend myself if I needed to, and it wouldn't be like, what do I do, you know, this kind of like flailing around type of, <laughs> of a situation if I have a, a person that yeah, is not um, being good. A lot of times... Uh you know, if somebody is an attacker or whatever, they may not even, you know, decide to, you know, attack you if they feel that, you know, you have an air about you of confidence and, and power, you know. And if they decide to maybe take that step to just to test the waters and you do fight back or you do something they weren't, you know, planning for, it'll throw off their game and then they might just abort, you know, their uh, their attack. And so sometimes just having a little bit of, you know, a defense, whether it's, you know, just, you know, yelling or whatever is enough. It doesn't always have to come to a physical altercation, you know. Mm -hmm. But the main thing that I kind of stress to people in self-defense anyways is that, you know, you need to have a plan because that helps you from, you know, freezing up and not doing anything. Mm -hmm. So um, definitely 
trying to help with being, you know, aware and giving you more body mechanics and things like this to understand and, uh, you know, psychological, you know, I guess, information too from the attacker's point of view on what he's looking for things like this and what you can do to counteract that, you know, before it ever becomes a physical altercation, you know. Mm-hmm. So that way, you know, you can have uh, a response if you need to, but, you know, you're just... Uh, Persona is your first line of defense. You know, the energy that you give off, the way you carry yourself, makes you look like you're not a victim or a target. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, definitely. I've learned a lot about that. Carrying yourself in a way where you don't look afraid, you know, being confident with your walk, like you were talking about, not staring at your phone or like acting disoriented. Not like you shouldn't ask questions if you're lost, though, but like yeah. still carrying it with a sense of purpose. <laughs> yes, definitely. Even if you you know don't know where you're going, you know, versus you know dilly dallying around in, in a neighborhood, you know that you don't know if it's getting dark and you're trying to figure out where you're going and you're you know staring around at street signs and, and a map and, and your phone and somebody who might be you know out looking for somebody will pick that up in a heartbeat. You know it would be a lot better for you to go back to the last known location that you were at. And then, you know, try and sort your way out from there, you know, mm-hmm. where you're in an environment that you are more comfortable in, that you, you know, have some familiarity with, you know. Mm-hmm. And things like that that people just don't, you know, think about. You know, a lot of times they become so involved at what they're doing at the moment that they are oblivious to everything else going on around them. And that's where you can really get yourself into uh, sticky situations, you know. Mm-hmm. So... Well, tell me a little bit about how you got involved in the martial arts community as a whole, because you have so much knowledge, like, you know, so many different styles, and weave them together, and have taught me a lot of practical stuff, but you also know some very beautiful, almost like a dance type of, of fighting style as well, capoeira, and, and sea lots really cool, lower down to the ground, realistic yeah. type moves. Um. Well, I, I, I appreciate the uh, <laughs> the compliments, but I just have to say, like, I think, like, as far as where it goes, I'm very beginner, novice, <laughs> not really accomplished, but, um... <laughs> Looks like, compared to what I know, <laughs> I'm yeah, a novice. So. You, I don't think you're on that. <laughs> but, um, I've, I've always been interested in martial arts, um, as far as I can ever remember, um... Connecting to your inner self is not all flowers and unicorns. It's a challenge to accept that you have no idea what you're doing, that you jumped off this plane. You're trying. That might be the problem. The trying. Chasing people to avoid dealing with my own self, eating too much, and not getting enough sleep are some of my Achilles heels. They might make for good sense gratification in the moment. What is, what is that really doing for my journey in the long term? Many times I end up feeling hollow and alone at the end of the day. Or the next morning. <laughs> so we, we actually specifically set up our fiscal agency so that we could have basically kind of the uh, operating costs that everybody has a hard time uh fundraising for with long-term recovery committees there are a number of national agencies who have like small seed grant programs for five or ten thousand dollars um so we were kind of applying for those because they're really flexible they can be applied to like funding at the that needs table for actual disaster recovery needs of a family so individual assistance stuff or they can be used for printing paper or a program coordinator they're very they're very flexible in their terms so that you can use it in ways that they know communities need that support Mm -hmm. so we got that set up specifically so that we could kind of and also we we uh, a lot of the grant funding that we have uh comes from out of state from those national organizations um and you know it's for stuff like hey if we have 30 people that really need to be at a meeting once a month but it's really difficult to do that and make time schedules mesh but if we can do it at lunch that's really easy but if you do it at lunch, people need to be able to eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, some of that is allocated for like having lunches, which I mean, I 
probably a few years ago before I was in nonprofits, I would have thought, oh, they're spending disaster recovery money on lunches. Well, people have to eat. And if they, if that's the only time they can get together, you know? So mm-hmm. I don't know, some of that, uh, anyways, I think I'm on a tangent. From well, I mean, coming from the nonprofit world though, that's a really good point is that they sometimes don't eat. I remember so many yeah. days where you don't even eat because you're on the phone constantly. You're talking about yeah. communication. People are trying mm-hmm. to get a hold of these nonprofits. How can they yeah. access their resources? And giving them a break where they can sit down and eat maybe the only time that they do that. So yeah. <laughs> you don't think about well, that when you think about some of this administrative costs, how much of their yeah. lives these people are putting into this job. Oh, yeah. Well, and also, I mean, if we can make it a little bit easier on them so that they're not having to go to this meeting and then be starving and then enter a bad mood and then go get lunch so that they can go back to work, like mm-hmm. it's an extra time thing. So yeah. those were some of the kind of the, you know, making sure that we had the finances in place to have kind of a, a foundation of coordination for all this stuff to occur, but then also so that we can really support people in the ways that they need it in making it to meet with the people they need to meet with. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, exactly. So many people see the person that I know to be true. I've been told the following shines through. Engagement, enthusiasm, love... Many people have told me, thank you for being a light. The way you live your life is so inspiring to me. However, there's another side of me that not many people get to see. I too have a dark side of the soul. And maybe it's not the soul. Could it be the conditioning, the layers on top of the soul? Many times, those layers try to overtake me and bring me down. I'm always looking for ways that I can help others, and I have a genuine desire to help all beings thrive. What does that mean, thrive? How can I possibly know what that means from one person to the next? I have one idea of what I think it should be, but then there comes in the word should, which I'm trying not to use these days. Because to me, should implies, ah, you know, I really do want to do that, but I'm not going to. Turtles were big, and you know that was one of the first you know movies I I saw. You know, and uh, what really caught me was uh, watching Bruce Lee movies and and listening to some of his interviews, and it really stuck with me from a young age that martial arts wasn't just about being cool and you know learning how to fight. But it was an art, and it was a form of self-expression. And I've always been athletic, but I was never really good at sports. <laughs> you know, maybe because my you know father never really stressed you know sports. He always stressed academics and things like that. But I was just you know athletic, and so we would play and things like that. And I would try and copy things and movements that I had seen and. I, I got a lot of pleasure out of doing that, and so as I got older, you know, I continued to do it. And when I was old enough, to, you know, you know, take lessons and things like that, I started learning from my father, and and then I went on to you know get classes for myself as I became an adult and things like that. And uh, the thing that really, I guess, drives me for martial arts in in general is is a passion. But it's a vehicle and a way of life for me that uh, has has deep personal value for me in the sense that uh, I look at it as kind of a uh, a path to enlightenment, so to speak. Um, a lot of people will, you know, say religion, and they, you know, are very um, into their particular faith. You know, and some people are all about, you know, esoteric things where they want to meditate and they want to try and find this cultivation of the mind through, you know, meditation or philosophy and things like that. And um, I appreciate those two avenues, but what really resonates with me is trying to learn mastery of the body and through that, um, cultivating the, the mind and the spirit as well. You know, 
it takes a certain amount of discipline to put yourself through, you know, pain and, and, you know, setbacks and frustration, you know, when you're trying to accomplish things and, and maybe it doesn't come as easily as you would want it to. But what really keeps me going even through all that is that when I am in that moment, I feel free, you know. I feel that I can really express who I am, you know, from inside, you know. As well as it being a, a good, uh, I guess, form of exercise and keeps me, you know, active and fit. So there are, you know, practical benefits that other people would obviously see, but for me, it's definitely about allowing my, you know, spirit or whatever to really um, be free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that grounding aspect of it's really huge, getting in tune with your coordination your mind and your body. Yeah, I love yoga because of that, and then doing martial arts with you, or self-defense, whatever we call what we've been <laughs> practicing, it's taking it to a whole nother level, because you really, you gotta get into the, the flow of things, not overthink it too much, but at the same time, do what is not going to open yourself up for somebody to be able to get an even worse strike in, because you've opened up instead of closing them off or you know there's different circular motions you've taught me about blocking punches and yeah getting um, out of holds. definitely uh when you were doing any partner activity it brings another element into it that is not there for um i guess practices that you know you do by yourself and even when you're doing your martial arts or, or yoga or anything like that by yourself you know, you can be mindful of what the situation might be, you know. But when you actually are practicing with another person, their energy, the way they move, their balance, you know, their, you know, strengths and weaknesses, it throws another dynamic in. And so I like to look at it as in, like you were saying, yoga has definitely been grounding you and everything this. But then the martial arts kind of augmented that as well. is because those things you were learning in yoga about being present and strengthening you know your body and balance and things like that are directly applicable to martial arts you know in a very dynamic and uh constantly changing you know you know manner so they definitely are, are complementary and as far as uh trying to find you know your balance on on how you want to you know train or whatever depends on what your your you know your goal is you know a lot of people will do it for fitness, or they want to do it for the lifestyle, their culture, and that's that's all. You know, I guess for everybody, they have their value. Mm-hmm. For me, I like you know a little bit of all that, you know. And as far as uh, what you were saying about the circular motions and grounding and being aware of not only your body but the other person, it's definitely something that it, it makes your awareness expanded. You know, from just, you know, being able to focus on your body to be able to, you know, know where you are at in space and time and also in relation to your partner, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the balance aspect, talking about that, the grid that you taught me, I posted a video on Facebook about it and I'm going to post it on YouTube too. You know, how most people aren't going to think about that stepping offline deal and how just that small motion of stepping offline can just really completely throw off someone's balance. Yeah, um, so kind of to tie it back into what you had asked about like martial arts community in whole, um, I had been studying different styles for many years, but I really, I kept feeling like it was something missing, I kept searching for something else, and I really feel like I found my home in like Filipino and um, Southeast Asian martial arts like C-Lot because of several things, the, uh, the science behind it and how thorough it was put together as far as from the ground up with the footwork, like you were talking about with the uh, triangular footwork and uh, those geometric shapes, that once you understand those principles, you can apply numerous techniques to any particular situation and it becomes less about remembering techniques and it comes more about following and feeling the flow of energy to and from you 
and uh, that's what really brought me into this particular field, you know. And because of those principles, I feel like it is uh, ideal for somebody who is maybe not, you know, physically that large, you know, mm -hmm. because of the uh, shapes and the angles that you create. It puts you in a advantageous situation to either off balance your opponent or to be able to deliver, you know, more devastating blows than you would be if you were facing them, you know, straight on. Mm -hmm. So, definitely, that's one of the aspects of this type of martial arts that I feel is very unique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you have talked a lot about the community of martial arts as a whole, you know, when we first started getting together, sharing videos with me, and it seems like it's a pretty tight-knit community. I mean, you know, sometimes, like I thought, okay, fighters, they probably don't get along all that well. I mean, they're, they're beating each other up in the ring, but it seems like it's like a, a family. It, it depends on the, uh, I guess, the, the, the community and, and the group that you're talking about, because there are a lot of egos involved in the whole and without bashing any particular person or any style, it is uh, One question that I've asked myself is, does that desire come from the ego, or is it of pure intention? I'd like to think it's the latter. But is that the ego, too? Do I take on the caretaker role so easily because I love taking care of others or is it because I secretly wish someone would do the same for me because I have it? These are the questions I've been asking myself on the daily. like thinking that this was a zero sum sort of thing like if I get it some that means that if I get this piece of the pie somebody else isn't going to get it because I'm eating this piece of the pie and they can't have it because I'm eating it mm -hmm. but in in this case that wasn't really something that we had to deal with we were very fortunate like you're saying with the donations that came in um but I think with some of the families, they got in that mindset. So some of the families that, you know, are still recovering and kind of have those complexities and things going on, I think a lot of it was just, you know, not not being willing to advocate for yourself because in your mind or your perception, uh, there were other people who needed it more. Or I think a lot of times the people who are already in precarious positions prior to disaster uh, tend to be people who haven't learned how to advocate for themselves in the first place um yeah i agree with you about that i was thinking about kind of that breaking the cycle thing how do we expect somebody to break the cycle if they've never been around anyone that helped to build up their own self-esteem and their own mm -hmm. self-worth and kind of help them to see this other side of humanity if you will all the different really good, positive things that are happening out there when you're in the day-to-day -day grind just to make sure yeah. you have enough food to eat or f feed your kids. Maybe you don't even eat, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So it's like something that I'm hoping with this podcast to learn mm -hmm. from other people all over the yeah. world. How are we helping people to rise up at the same mm -hmm. time instead of just giving them oh, the yeah. fish, teaching them the fish concept? Well, and the other thing, uh, so, I mean, going back to your second question, uh, or going into your second question, uh, what's unique about your community? So I think looking at, if I, I define community as long-term disaster recovery or disaster response and recovery, um, that community, both here in Oklahoma City, in Oklahoma State, and nationally uh, for domestic disasters, I think we see disaster response and recovery being as a separate thing outside of normal community life. So, you know, people like to talk about the, the disaster cycle. You've got, you know, preparedness, mitigation and preparedness, and then you have a disaster and you have response and, you know, relief and short-term recovery and you know, all these different kind of things. And, you know, the main ones are the response for uh, long-term recovery, mitigation and preparedness. Well, you can't divorce those phases. So what we're dealing with today 
with those 300 families who are still recovering and new cases who are coming in because they were just stretched too far because of disaster fraud. Those problems started with preparedness. Uh, and they started with, you know, our plan as a community to get disaster fraud prevention information out and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can't you can't take any one of those si- those phases out of the cycle and put it in a vacuum and say, oh, this is what we're doing. We're doing long term disaster recovery, and that's all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we try to do that, and then we also do this strange thing where we try to take the disaster cycle outside of normal community life and outside of this ecosystem of nonprofits businesses, uh, government agencies, and everything that we have that makes up this kind of fabric of our communities. We try to act like it's, we're going to take this thread out and put it over here, and this is the thing that we're doing. But it doesn't work as a blanket if it's a single thread over here. I mean, so you can't you can't take, any more than you can take a phase of the disaster cycle out, you can't take this whole thing, this disaster response and recovery thing, out of the communities that it's housed in. And we like to think of this as a special thing that we do that's different from everything else and it's not because when a disaster occurs in a community you have to use everything that community has to recover and so coming kind of full circle on that (laughs) when you know you're talking about how do you how do you help families uh, kind of get out of that cycle if you're looking at getting them back to a new normal which is kind of one of those terms we throw around in our disaster world here um, if you're really looking at getting them to a new normal and you're also considering that within the context of the larger community and how does this benefit community resilience long-term and how does this benefit this family's or this individual's resilience long-term? You have to consider pulling in things that aren't necessarily disaster recovery related. So can we get them to consumer credit counseling service to, to some of the really great fiscally fit boot camps so that they can learn skills that are going to make them more resilient and less likely to end up in this position next time? Uh, can we have uh, home insurance seminars so that they can better understand how they can be covered if, if they're in a position where they own a home? Um, can we make sure that we're getting them in touch with ongoing programs uh, like with the regional food bank or things like that so that they're plugged into these larger systems that are ongoing, that aren't what we think of as just the disaster recovery stuff. So yeah, regional food bank has been great. They've got great like disaster, like food replacement programs or uh, for a couple of years, I think they just ended last May. Uh, they had some really great programs for disaster impacted families that were beyond their normal programs for the community. But, you know, how do we how do we make sure that families are getting plugged into the normal ongoing operations as well and some of the really fantastic things that are happening? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we're just thinking of it as this is, you know, it's it's just us who do disaster recovery and nobody else. And it's a special thing and it's different than it's We're not, not going to get anywhere. Anywhere. Yeah, it's just going to perpetuate yeah. the cycle. There's always going to be more yeah. people that need more help during a disaster, whereas if we mm-hmm. help them rise throughout time, Absolutely. you know, then we'll hopefully wouldn't have quite as many people that like you're talking about that yeah. need this length of assistance because they didn't mm-hmm. have the skills to kind of take a second and critically think about, okay, what do we need to do here? <laughs> you know, we've got to work through the steps. We've got to figure out who we need to contact, mm-hmm. wh- wh- who's the person to register with that this has happened, all of those yeah. different things. If they're just completely lost, nowhere mm-hmm. to start, then they're not going to get anywhere. So yeah, yeah that makes exactly. Sense. This is why I decided to leave my job. I sold most of my stuff and brought my animals across country. I stripped away almost all of who I was. And in the process, in theory, I'd find who I really am. Notice the keyword, almost. In my group of practitioners and teachers that I involve myself with, a community is very tight-knit and uh, very supportive. And we may, you know, train hard, we may throw hard hits and blows, but it's not out of a place of anger or malice or, you know, fueled by ego. It's about pushing and testing what is true and honest. You know, you can learn fancy moves and all kinds of techniques, 
but it comes to a point as what is really you, you know? And when your life is on the line or somebody, you know, that you care about, you need to have faith in what you know and what you can do. And you need to know a clear line between what is for show, what is for fun, and what is for practicality's sake. And that's why I really like the group of people that I train with, you know. They definitely uh, keep me honest and push me to new heights, you know. And because of those experiences, I come back with a greater insight for when I'm teaching, you know, anybody that I may come in contact with. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, I liked getting to know your sisters at your class. That's cool. Yes, yes, I am very happy about that. Um, I've been into martial arts for many, many years, and a lot of people in my family were like, oh, that's just the thing that Taki does. (laughs) And, um... It feels nice that they're actually saying, hey, there's some value in this now as people are getting older. So I have really enjoyed watching my sisters come and their you know, confidence levels and skill grow as they've been training with me, mm-hmm. as I have for you. you know? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the first few times I was like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. This is like too much coordination. I'm not, a, well, I, I'm trying to move away from saying things like, I'm not coordinated, I'm not this or that, you know, because it's all... It's relative, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and the thing that I really <laughs> admired about you is that you're were willing to try. It was something completely out of your comfort zone, and you had a hard time even getting your mind around the idea of trying to throw a punch or a, a kick or anything that had the intent or even the possibility of hurting somebody. And since then, you have been able to develop your skill set and I think that if you know you need to you could definitely defend yourself you know well thank you yeah it's been cool to learn the essence from you yeah yeah if you want to maybe elaborate a little bit on oh yeah the essence is kind of (laughs) it's uh (laughs) so a lot of times in in martial arts people focus on the techniques and they focus on making everything very crisp. And that's great because you need that for your body mechanics and things like this. But a lot of times they focus so much on that, they lose the purpose of what you're training. Mm-hmm. If you were trained in martial art, it is a martial art. And if you are focusing so much on the artistic side of it that you lose the martial aspect you really need to come back and assess what are you doing this for if you were doing it for a a lifestyle or exercise or just for fun that's fine but if you were trying to train for the sake that you might need to use this to defend yourself you need to really understand the essence if you were going to throw a jab there is a difference between throwing the jab out there for the form's sake and then there's the idea of throwing it out there with the intent that this is supposed to accomplish a goal Mm -hmm. you know same thing for any of the throws or footwork a lot of people will run through their footwork without any awareness of balance and posture they will just do the uh, footwork and once they learn a pattern, they will mentally check out, mm-hmm. you know. And a lot of times you'll see in uh, martial arts, they'll have these elaborate um, training sequences where there'll be counter after counter after counter after counter. And these people look very skilled, but they're just playing a pattern that they have rehearsed, just like a play. Mm-hmm. But real confrontation and real combat is not like that. It's, you know, unpredictable. It's wild and things don't always go the way you plan. So you have to have your mind present to be able to problem solve. Because really what this is, is just that. It's problem solving. If somebody is intent on harming you, 
you have to solve that in some way, whether it's de-escalating it, walking away, or worst case scenario, you can do neither of those things and you have to physically solve this problem by taking that person out of the equation, meaning that you know you can incapacitate them or you can you know maybe uh, control them in a way that they can't no longer hurt you. Mm-hmm. But with that essence is you have to bring the intention that yes, I may not have any ill will toward you or even in training, I don't want to hurt my training partner, but you have to give an honest effort. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I was very hesitant at first because I didn't want to, like, accidentally hit too hard or whatever. I mean, you know, when I was a child, I struggled with some anger management issues, and I think as an adult, I've just been really, really conscious to try to work through all of that and not let that be something that I'm bringing to my my life, I guess you could say, but yet there's a time and a place for for that essence that you're talking about, and it doesn't mean that you're an angry person, it's that you're you're doing what you have to do to respond versus react. Yeah, um, that's one of the things that I've, I've recently, in the last couple of years, been really focusing on, is because when I was younger, I had um, moved from Virginia, where I, I grew up mostly, to the inner city of Detroit. And it was very much of a culture shock to me, and um, I was not well received. I got in lots of fights, and you know I had been raised to be nonviolent. You know, and my parents, you know, were always like, you know, you try to walk away. And in my home, I never seen violence besides, you know, sibling bickering and things like that. But um, it was definitely different for me to see a, you know, overtly hostile environment you know for no particular reason mm-hmm. and uh, so I became you know callous and kind of angry and you know that's what I did at the time to you know fit in and, and kind of survive so to speak but uh, as I'm getting older now I realize that you don't have to necessarily always have anger to fight you know and um, as I, I've become more trained, I've realized that I can separate the two. And I do a lot better when I am not emotionally involved. I can be objective, mm-hmm. you know, where my mind is still present. And that's really where you start to get to the point of uh, responding versus reacting. Many people tell me not to be so hard on myself. In my mind, it's not that I'm being hard on myself. It's me knowing I'm not making choices that are good for me. I'm hurting myself, and I'm aware of that fact. The days run together. So many lessons to be learned. This journey evolves every day. As I start to explore the tribe mind, I realize that perhaps the reason I'm doing this is to love myself enough to find my true tribe. To do this, I must dissolve the masks. We're relatively young in this, so I mean, FEMA's only, you know, three, four decades old. Uh, Kind of that overall coordinated thing on the nonprofit side that we think of so voluntary organizations active in national VOAD or like the state VOADs mm-hmm. um, that's only been around I think since like the 70s or 80s so I mean that's pretty young as well and we tend to focus on individual assistance which you know if you're not doing individual assistance so I'm at needs tables case management if you're not doing that well then you're probably not doing long term recovery or response well but there's also this broader kind of community aspect of it and I think where things are moving uh, whether it's with like FEMA or nonprofits or whatever, as far as domestic response and recovery goes, I think we're moving from that very myopic uh, focus on individual assistance, but while supporting, still supporting that, looking at more a community resilience aspect. So um, you can have a community with where 100% of the population is 100% resilient, um, but say the third time there's a flood that comes through that community part of those families resilience 
is, you know what? I know about how much I can take. We're moving. Mm-hmm. And say 70% of them leave. You didn't have a resilient community. You had a community with 100% resilient population. Mm-hmm. But you didn't have a resilient community. So kind of panning out and looking at that concept of community resilience uh, as part of what supports that individual resilience as well. But And kind of panning out as well as far as how we approach response and recovery, not just from an individual assistance perspective, because you can do that really, really well, but still not have uh, resilient or recovered communities. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I think is so cool about more in the Oklahoma City area, proper, all the different mm-hmm. s- surrounding areas, is we seem to band together, you know, and yeah. the Oklahoma Disaster Recovery Project everyone kind of came under one umbrella and worked collaboratively. And it seems like a really cool model for day-to-day resources, not just disaster, like what you're talking about, but make it easier for people to come in, register at one place. And then that case manager is going to go out and look for Mm -hmm. the dog food, the kids clothes, the fence for the yard, the, you know, food that they're going to need for the next week. And then the case manager comes back and says, okay, I found mm-hmm. you all these resources. You can pick them up here at this office, or I can go out and get them for you, which I know is yeah. a difficult model when you're talking about a large population. Well, ideally though, like the idea with long-term recovery committees and with LART would be that the case management agencies, the case managers wouldn't be going out and finding those resources. You would have people coming to and kind of siphoning through this clearinghouse sort of membership sort of thing mm-hmm. where we've got all the contact information. Agencies like Humane Society, like you guys, had referral forms, um, which is, you know, something we're going to try and beef up across the board with our partner agencies with the 15 response stuff. So making sure that everybody knows, hey, this is how you get case managers to understand what you have and how you can make it easy for them to get that stuff to their clients. So it's not like your case manager like was going to go out and find Humane Society and find clothes and find food. They've got all that information at their fingertips and they have all the contact information at their fingertips. And by interviewing a family, they can think, oh, I already have all the information I need. Here are referral forms. Here's what you do with them. And they can kind of empower those families then to take those and do what they need to with them. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, so that does make sense. Not even just that you have this case management thing and you have this like ODRIP collaborative uh, to support that individual assistance thing, but how can the community come together to support that piece? Well, it's also very useful to have those contacts lists and that like program information uh, available for other reasons and for other community project type things. Mm-hmm. So kind of looking at how, how all that can feed into seamlessly without a lot of extra effort and sustainably, <laughs> uh, which is, that's the tricky part, um, into something that really like mutually supports everything. Exactly. Yeah. So do you think that there's something unique about this community in particular? Or do you think this is a trend nationwide that groups are starting to move away from that myopic model and they want to simplify, streamline seamlessly like you're talking about to make the process go faster, I guess, to distribute resources? Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Um, You know, I think this is kind of one of those things that's still, like, in its infancy. Um, So the whole long-term recovery committee or long-term recovery group or long-term recovery organization, depending on whether you have a 501c3 or whatever, you know, that's been around for a couple of decades. And communities, depending on the disaster and kind of their unique makeup, go about recovery in different ways. So, you know, sometimes you'll have recovery committees. Other times you'll just have an unmet needs table uh, where funders gather. Um, And, you know, there are probably all sorts of iterations of that that I'm not even aware of. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that, like, moving from just that focus on individual assistance while also really respecting and honoring that 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 really is the backbone uh, of response and long-term recovery is that individual assistance piece. Like I said, if you're not doing that well, you're probably not doing the rest well either. But then again, like I said earlier, you can have a backbone and you cannot have a living, moving, walking organism because you have to have a central nervous system and you have to have all the other body systems in place and functional. Uh, so yeah. it's not so much about transforming the world and helping others rise up as it is about helping myself rise to my own highest potential. 
I thought I'd go off the grid and run away. Then I met Tyree with the Heidelberg Project. After I met Tyree, the podcast realization developed. I wonder if this podcast is a way that is forcing me to be vulnerable. I could go through this personal journey without digging in, but would I? Or would I choose to indulge the senses? Ultimately, this mindset is shifting at a fast pace. The days all run together. I must break the habits that I know aren't right for me. I must build new habits. Ones that can help my soul to thrive. It definitely helps you to learn who you are better, and thus it allows you to communicate to the rest of the world that much more. Mm -hmm. So it's not always about speaking, but the way you carry yourself because you know who you are, you know? Yeah. Powerful. Thank you so much, Taki. You're welcome. If people want to find out more about Close Quarters Combat, if they live in the Ann Arbor area... Where can they go? What's the best um, way to look you up? Well, you can look me up on, on my website. is uh, www.cqcacademy.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook. Uh, you can find me on there at Close Quarters Combat um, on Facebook. I'm also on uh, Instagram and Twitter, um, CQC Academy. So you can look me up there. And... Um, yeah. So, in closing, if you had one word or phrase to use to describe the community you're cultivating at Close Quarters Combat, what would you use to describe it? Uh, let's see here. I would like to say that um, my goal in, in, in CQC in training the uh, group of people that I work with is uh, confident, empowered people it's not so much about fighting as it is about being empowered ah, I feel much more empowered after training with you for three months thank so you I'm so grateful <laughs> any, any other closing thoughts anything you want to share before we stop recording I I don't know I think we covered a lot I yeah good to go yeah. do we do a little bit of pack stuff before it gets too dark oh look this is why I love this spot behind the church. There's light here. There's a plug. This okay. has been like my little hidey hole in its lane. So, yeah, we should have a little bit of light to do some pack exercises. Cause, like, okay. Posture-wise, carrying this backpack around is already starting to... I mean, I already had bad back posture as it was, so... <laughs> That'd be awesome if we can do some of that. Okay. So final question to kind of wrap up our interview, which thank you so much for taking the time. I know you guys yeah. are kicking off your 2015 efforts for all the flooding and oh my gosh. We got, just got into this office. So good luck to you for that. But tell me one word or phrase you'd use to describe your community that you've built here. Oh. Hmm. That's the one I should have been thinking about the whole time, <laughs> so I'd have a a good one. I mean, so word wise, I'd say resilient. I mean that that pretty well captures any Oklahoman, but also kind of any any community that you could define in Oklahoma. Um, man, yeah. Phrase, yeah, resilient. I like it. Phrase-wise, I would actually say probably working towards community resilience. I think that's that's something that people maybe don't give words to specifically, but I feel like that's where we're moving. So kind of that whole idea of a fabric instead of a thread. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much. That was beautiful. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. This was really awesome. All right, I'm, gonna... I'm really excited to hear about all your travels. Yeah, it'll be quite the adventure. I'm going to 
like I said at the beginning, want to share as much as I can with people mm-hmm. that wouldn't otherwise maybe get a chance to do this. Yeah. If I'm going you know, to take this leap of faith, if you will, mm-hmm. might as well share as much of the learning yeah. that I'm experiencing at the same time. Yeah. So no, I love it. We're all in this together. Fantastic. <laughs> no more excuses. Well, thanks for your support. I'm going to hit yeah. stop on no the record No need to blame now. myself. As Jamie taught me, it's about helping your DNA to evolve. Thanks for listening to Unified Threads.